Chapter Twelve of A Girl of the Limberlost by Jean Stratton Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, wherein Margaret Sinton reveals a secret and Mrs. Comstock possesses the Limberlost. Elnor, bring me the towel, quick! Cried Mrs. Comstock. In a minute, Mother mumbled. Elnor. She was standing before the kitchen mirror, tying the back part of her hair, while the front turned over her face. Hurry! There's a varmint of some kind. Elnor ran into the sitting-room and thrust the heavy kitchen towel into her mother's hand. Mrs. Comstock swung open the screen door and struck at some object. Elnor tossed the hair from her face so that she could see past her mother. The girl screamed wildly. "'Don't, mother, don't!' Mrs. Comstock struck again. Elnor caught her arm. "'It's the one I want. It's worth a lot of money. Don't! Oh, you shall not!' "'Shan't, Missy,' blazed Mrs. Comstock. "'When did you get to bossing me?' The hand that held the screen swept a half-circle and stopped at Elnor's cheek. She staggered with the blow, and across her face, paled with excitement, a red mark rose rapidly. The screen slammed shut, throwing the creature on the floor before them. Instantly, Mrs. Comstock's foot crushed it. Elnor stepped back. Accepting the red mark, her face was very white. "'That was the last moth I needed,' she said, "'to complete a collection worth three hundred dollars. "'You've ruined it before my eyes.' "'Moth!' cried Mrs. Comstock. "'You say that because you are mad. "'Moths have big wings. "'I know a moth.' "'I've kept things from you,' said Elnora, "'because I didn't dare confide in you. "'You had no sympathy with me, "'but you know I never told you untruths in all my life.' "'It's no moth,' reiterated Mrs. Comstock. "'It is!' cried Elnor. "'It's just out of a case in the ground. "'Its wings take two or three hours to expand and harden.' "'If I had known it was a moth,' Mrs. Comstock wavered. "'You did know! I told you! I begged you to stop. "'It meant just three hundred dollars to me.' "'Bah! Three hundred fiddlesticks!' sneered Mrs. Comstock. "'They are what have paid for books, tuition, and clothes for the last four years. "'They are what I could have started on a college.' You've crushed the last one I needed before my face. You never have made any pretense of loving me. At last, I'll be equally frank with you. I hate you. You are a selfish, wicked woman. I hate you. Elnora turned, went through the kitchen and out the back door. She followed the garden path to the gate and walked toward the swamp a short distance when reaction overtook her. She dropped on the ground and leaned against a big log. When a little child, desperate as now, she had tried to die by holding her breath. She had thought in that way to make her mother sorry, but she had learned that life was a thing thrust upon her, and death would not come at her wish. She was so crushed over the loss of that moth which she had childishly named the Yellow Emperor, that she scarcely remembered the blow. She had thought no luck in all the world would be so rare as to complete her collection, and she just had been forced to see a splendid imperialist crushed to a mass before her. There was a possibility that she could find another, but now she was facing the certainty that the one she might have had, and with which she undoubtedly could have attracted others, was ruined by her mother. How long she sat there, Elnora did not know or care. She simply suffered in dumb, abject misery, an occasional dry sob shaking her. Aunt Margaret was right. Elnora felt that morning that her mother never would be any different. The girl had reached a place where she realized that she could bear it no longer. As Elnora left the room, Mrs. Comstock took one step after her. "'You little hussy!' she gasped. But Elnora was gone. Her mother stood staring. "'She never did lie to me,' she muttered. 
I guess it was a moth, and the only one she needed to get three hundred dollars, she said. I wish I hadn't been so fast. I never saw anything like it. I thought it was some deadly, stinging, biting thing. Body does have to be mighty careful here. But likely I've spilt the milk now. Pshaw, she can find another. There's no use to be foolish. Maybe moths are like snakes. Where there's one, there's two. Mrs. Comstock took the broom and swept the moth out of the door. Then she got down on her knees and carefully examined the steps, logs, and the earth of the flower beds at each side. She found the place where the creature had emerged from the ground and the hard, dark, brown case which had enclosed it, still wet inside. Then she knew Elnora had been right. It was a moth. Its wings had been damp and not expanded. Mrs. Comstock never before had seen one in that state, and she did not know how they originated. She had thought all of them came from cases spun on trees or against walls or boards. She only had seen enough to know that there were such things, just as a flash of white told her that an ermine was on her premises, or a sharp buzz warned her of a rattler. So it was from creatures like that Elnora had gotten her school money. In one sickening sweep there rushed into the heart of the woman a full realization of the width of the gulf which separated her from her child. Lately many things had pointed toward it, none more plainly than when Elnora, like a reincarnation of her father, had stood fearlessly before a large city audience and played with even greater skill than he, on what Mrs. Comstock felt very certain was his violin. But that little crawling creature of earth, crushed by her before its splendid yellow and lavender wings could spread and carry it into the mystery of night, had brought a realizing sense. "'We are nearer strangers with each other than we are with any of the neighbors,' she muttered. So one of the Almighty's most delicate and beautiful creations was sacrificed without fulfilling the law, yet none of its species ever served so glorious a cause, for at last Mrs. Comstock's inner vision had cleared. She went through the cabin mechanically. Every few minutes she glanced toward the back walk to see if Elnora was coming. She knew arrangements had been made with Margaret to go to the city some time that day, so she grew more nervous and uneasy every moment. She was haunted by the fear that the blow might discolor Elnora's cheek and that she would tell Margaret. She went down the back walk, looking intently in all directions, left the garden, and took the swampy path. Her step was noiseless on the soft black earth, and soon she came near enough to see Elnora. Mrs. Comstock stood looking at the girl in troubled uncertainty. Not knowing what to say, at last she turned and went back to the cabin. Noon came and she prepared dinner, calling as she always did, when Elnora was in the garden, but she got no response, and the girl did not come. A little after one o'clock, Margaret stopped at the gate. "'Elnora has changed her mind. She is not going,' called Mrs. Comstock. She felt that she hated Margaret as she hitched her horse and came up the walk instead of driving on. "'You must be mistaken,' said Margaret. "'I was going on purpose for her. She asked me to take her. I had no errand. Where is she?' "'I will call her,' said Mrs. Comstock. She followed the path again, and this time found Elnora sitting on the log. Her face was swollen and discolored, and her eyes red with crying. She paid no attention to her mother. "'Mag Senton is here,' said Mrs. Comstock harshly. "'I told her you had changed your mind, but she said you asked her to go with you, and she had nothing to go for herself.' Elnora rose, recklessly took a short cut through the deep swamp grasses, and so reached the path ahead of her mother. Mrs. Comstock followed as far as the garden, but she could not enter the cabin. She busied herself among the vegetables, barely looking up when the back door screen slammed noisily. Margaret Sinton approached colorless and with such flaming eyes that Mrs. Comstock shrank back. 
"What's the matter with Elnora's face?" demanded Margaret. Mrs. Comstock made no reply. "You struck her, did you?" "I thought you wasn't blind." "I have been for twenty long years now, Kate Comstock," said Margaret Sinton, "but my eyes are open at last. What I see is that I've done you no good, and Elnora a big wrong. I had an idea that it would kill you to know, but I guess you are tough enough to stand anything. Kill or cure, you get it now." "'What are you frothing about?' coolly asked Mrs. Comstock. "'You!' cried Margaret. "'You, the woman who don't pretend to love her only child, "'who lets her grow to a woman as you have let Elnora, "'and can't be satisfied with every sort of neglect, "'but must add abuse yet, "'and all for a fool idea about a man who wasn't worth his salt.' "'Mrs. Comstock picked up a hoe. "'Go right on,' she said. "'Empty yourself. "'It's the last thing you'll ever do.' "'Then I'll make a tidy job of it,' said Margaret. "'You'll not touch me. "'You'll stand there and hear the truth at last, "'and because I dare face you and tell it, "'you will know in your soul it is truth. "'When Robert Comstock shaved that quagmire out there "'so close he went in, "'he wanted to keep you from seeing where he was coming from. "'He'd been to see Elvira Kearney. "'They had plans to go to a dance that night. "'Close your lips,' said Mrs. Comstock "'in a voice of deadly quiet. "'You know I wouldn't dare open them "'if I was not telling you the truth.' I can prove what I say. I was coming from Reed's. It was hot in the woods, and I stopped at Carney's as I passed for a drink. Elvira's bedridden old mother heard me, and she was so crazy for someone to talk with, I stepped in a minute. I saw Robert come down the path. Elvira saw him, too, and she ran out of the house to head him off. It looked funny, and I just deliberately moved where I could see and hear. He brought her his violin and told her to get ready and meet him in the woods with it that night, and they would go to a dance. She took it and hid it in the little loft to the well-house and promised she'd go. "'Are you done?' demanded Mrs. Comstock. "'No, I'm going to tell you the whole story. You don't spare Elnora anything. I shan't spare you. I hadn't been here that day, but I can tell you just how he was dressed, which way he went, and every word they said, though they thought I was busy with her mother and wouldn't notice them. "'Put down your hoe, Kate. I went to Elvira, told her what I knew, "'and made her give me Comstock's violin for Elnor over three years ago. "'She's been playing it ever since. "'I won't see her slighted and abused another day "'on account of a man who would have broken your heart if he had lived. Six months more would have showed you what everybody else knew. "'He was one of those men who couldn't trust himself, "'and so no woman was safe with him. "'Now will you drop grieving over him and do Elnor justice?' Mrs. Comstock gripped the hoe tighter, and turning, she went down the walk and started across the woods to the home of Elvira Kearney. With averted head, she passed the pool, steadily pursuing her way. Elvira Kearney, hanging towels across the back fence, saw her coming and went toward the gate to meet her. Twenty years she had dreaded that visit. Since Margaret Sinton had compelled her to produce the violin she had hidden so long, because she was afraid to destroy it, she had come more near expectation than dread. The wages of sin are the hardest debts on earth to pay, and they are always collected at inconvenient times in unexpected places. Mrs. Comstock's face and hair were so white that her dark eyes seemed burned into their setting. Silently, she stared at the woman before her a long time. "'I might have saved myself the trouble of coming,' she said at last. "'I see you are guilty as sin.' "'What has Mag Sinton been telling you?' panted the miserable woman, gripping the fence. "'The truth,' answered Mrs. Comstock succinctly. "'Guilt is in every line of your face and your eyes all over your wretched body. "'If I had taken a good look at you any time in all these past years, "'no doubt I could have seen it just as plain as I can now. 
No woman or man can do what you've done and not get a mark set on them for every one to read." "Mercy!" gasped weak little Elvira Kearney. "Have mercy!" "Mercy!" scoffed Mrs. Comstock. "Mercy! That's a nice word from you! How much mercy did you have on me? Where's the mercy that sent Comstock to the slime of the bottomless quagmire and left me to see it, and then struggle on in agony all these years? How about the mercy of letting me allow my baby to be neglected all the days of her life? Mercy! Do you really dare use the word to me? If you knew what I've suffered! Suffered! jeered Mrs. Comstock. That's interesting, and pray, what have you suffered? All the neighbors have suspected and been down on me. I ain't had a friend. I've always felt guilty of his death. I've seen him go down a thousand times, plain as ever you did. Many's the night I've stood on the other bank of that pool and listened to you, and I tried to throw myself in to keep from hearing you. But I didn't dare. I knew God would send me to burn forever, but I'd better done it. For now he has set the burning on my body, and every hour it is slowly eating the life out of me. The doctor says it's a cancer. Mrs. Comstock exhaled a long breath. Her grip on the hoe relaxed, and her stature lifted to towering height. I didn't know or care when I came here just what I did, she said. But my way is beginning to clear. If the guilt of your soul has come to a head and a cancer on your body, it looks as if the Almighty didn't need any of my help in meeting out his punishments. I really couldn't fix up anything to come anywhere near that. If you are going to burn until your life goes out with that sort of fire, you don't owe me anything. Oh, Catherine Comstock, groaned Elvira Kearney, clinging to the fence for support. Looks as if the Bible's right when it says the wages of sin is death, don't it? asked Mrs. Comstock. Instead of doing a woman's work in life, you chose a smile of invitation in the dress of unearned cloth. Now you tell me you are marked to burn to death with the uncrinchable fire. And him! It was shorter with him, but let me tell you, he got his share. He left me with an untruth on his lips, for he told me he was going to take his violin to Onabasha for a new key, when he carried it to you. Every vow of love and constancy he ever made me was a lie after he touched your lips. So when he tried the wrong side of the quagmire to hide from me the direction in which he was coming, it reached out for him, and it got him. It didn't hurry either. It just sucked him down, slow and deliberate. Mercy, groaned Elvira Kearney. Mercy. I don't know the word, said Mrs. Comstock. You took all that out of me long ago. The last twenty years haven't been of the sort that taught mercy. I've never had any on myself and none on my child. Why in the name of justice should I have mercy on you, or on him? You were both older than me, both strong, sane people. You deliberately chose your course when you lured him and he, when he was unfaithful to me. When a loose man and a light woman faced the death the Almighty ordained for them, why should they shout at me for mercy? What did I have to do with it? Elvira Kearney sobbed in panting gasps. You've got tears, have you? marveled Mrs. Comstock. Mine all dried long ago. I've none left to shed over my wasted life, my disfigured face and hair, my years of struggle with a man's work, my wreck of land among the tilled fields of my neighbors, or the final knowledge that the man I so gladly would have died to save wasn't worth the sacrifice of a rattlesnake. If anything yet could wring a tear from me, it would be the thought of the awful injustice I always have done my girl. If I lay a hand on you for anything, it would be for that. Kill me if you want to, sobbed Elvira Kearney. I know that I deserve it. I don't care. You are getting your killing fast enough to suit me, said Mrs. Comstock. I wouldn't touch you any more than I would him if I could. Once is all any man or woman deceives me about the holiest things of life. I wouldn't touch you any more than I would the Black Plague. I am going back to my girl. Mrs. Comstock turned and started swiftly through the woods. 
but she had gone only a few rods when she stopped, and leaning on the hoe, she stood thinking deeply. Then she turned back. Elvira still clung to the fence, sobbing bitterly. "'I don't know,' said Mrs. Comstock, "'but I left a wrong impression with you. I don't want you to think that I believe the Almighty set a cancer to burning you as a punishment for your sins. I don't. I think a lot more of the Almighty. With a whole sky full of worlds on his hands to manage, I'm not believing that he has time to look down on ours and pick you out of all the millions of we sinners and give a special kind of torture to eating you. It wouldn't be a gentlemanly thing to do, and first of all, the Almighty is bound to be a gentleman. I think likely a bruise and bad blood is what caused your trouble. Anyway, I've got to tell you that the cleanest housekeeper I ever knew, one of the noblest Christian women, was slowly eaten up by a cancer. She got hers from the careless work of a poor doctor. The Almighty is to forgive sin and heal disease, not to invent and spread it. She had gone only a few steps when she again turned back. If you will gather a lot of red clover bloom, make a tea strong as lye of it, and drink quartz, I think likely it will help you if you are not too far gone. Anyway, it will cool your blood and make the burning easier to bear. Then she swiftly walked home. Into the lonely cabin she could not, neither could she sit outside and think. She attacked a bed of beets and hoed until the perspiration ran from her face and body. Then she began on the potatoes. When she was too tired to take another stroke, she bathed and put on dry clothing. In securing her dress, she noticed her husband's carefully preserved clothing lining one wall. She gathered it in a great armload and carried it out to the swamp. Piece by piece, she pitched into the green maw of the quagmire all those articles she had dusted carefully and fought moths from for years, and stood watching as it slowly sucked them down. She went back to her room and gathered every scrap that had in any way belonged to Robert Comstock, excepting his gun and revolver, and threw it into the swamp. Then, for the first time, she set her door wide open. She was too weary now to do more, but an urging unrest drove her. She wanted Elnora. It seemed to her she never could wait until the girl came and delivered her judgment. At last, in an effort to get nearer to her, Mrs. Comstock climbed the stairs and stood looking around Elnora's room. It was very unfamiliar. The pictures were strange to her. Commencement had filled it with packages and bundles. The walls were covered with cocoons. Moths and dragonflies were pinned about. Under the bed she could see a half-dozen large white boxes. She did not know what they contained. She pulled out one and lifted the lid. The bottom was covered with a sheet of thin cork, and on long pins sticking in it were dozens of great velvet-winged moths. Each one was labeled, always there were two of a kind, in many cases four, showing under and upper wings of both male and female. They were of every color and shape. Mrs. Comstock caught her breath sharply. When and where had Elnora gotten all of them? They were the most exquisite sight the woman ever had seen so she opened all the boxes to feast on their beautiful contents. As she did so, there came more fully a sense of the distance between her and her child. She could not understand how Elnora had gone to school and performed all this work secretly. When it was finished, up to the very last moth, she, the mother, who should have been the first confidant and helper, had been the one to bring disappointment. Small wonder Elnora had come to hate her. Mrs. Comstock carefully closed and replaced the boxes and again stood looking around the room. This time her eyes rested on some books she did not remember having seen before, so she picked up one and found that it was a moth book. She glanced over the first pages and was soon eagerly reading. When the text reached the classification of species, she laid it down, took up another, and read its introductory chapters. Then she found some papers and studied them. 
By that time her brain was in a confused jumble of ideas about capturing moths with differing baits and bright lights. She went downstairs thinking deeply. Being unable to sit still and having nothing else to do, she glanced at the clock and began preparing supper. The work dragged. A chicken was snatched up and dressed hurriedly. A spice cake sprang into being in short order. Strawberries that had been intended for preserves went into short cake. Delicious odors crept from the cabin. She put many extra touches on the table and then commenced watching the road. Everything was ready, but Elnora did not come. Then began the anxious process of trying to keep cooked food warm and not spoil it. The birds went to bed and dusk came. Mrs. Comstock gave up the fire and set the supper on the table. Then she went out and sat on the front doorstep watching night creep all around her. She started eagerly as the gate creaked, but it was only Wesley Sinton coming down the walk. Catherine, Margaret and Elnora passed where I was working this afternoon, and Margaret got out of the carriage and called me to the fence. She told me what she had done. I've come to say to you that I am sorry. She has heard me threaten to do it a good many times, but I never would have got it done. I'd give a good deal if I could undo it, but I can't, so I've come to tell you how sorry I am. You've got something to be sorry for, said Mrs. Comstock, but likely we ain't thinking of the same thing. It hurts me less to know the truth than to live in ignorance. If Mag had the sense of a peewee, she told me long ago. That's what hurts me, to think that both of you knew Robert was not worth an hour of honest grief, yet you'd let me mourn him all these years and neglect Elnora while I did it. If I've anything to forgive you, that is what it is. Sinton took off his hat and sat on a bench. Catherine, he said solemnly, nobody ever knows how to take you. Would it be asking too much to take me for having a few grains of plain common sense, she inquired. You've known all this time that Comstock got what he deserved when he undertook to sneak in an unused way across a swamp which he was none too familiar. Now I should have thought that you'd figure that knowing the same thing would be the best method to cure me of pining for him and slighting my child. Heaven only knows we have thought of that and talked of it often, but we were both two big cowards. We didn't dare tell you. So you have gone on year after year watching me show indifference to Elnora, and yet a little horse sense would have pointed out to you that she was my salvation. Why, look at it, not married quite a year, all his vows of love and fidelity made to me before the Almighty forgotten in a few months, and a dance in a light woman so alluring he had to lie and sneak for them. What kind of a prospect is that for a life? I know men and women. An honorable man is an honorable man, and a liar is a liar. Both are born and not made. One cannot change to the other any more than that same old leopard can change its spots. After a man tells a woman the first untruth of that sort, the others come piling thick, fast and mountain high. The desolation they bring in their wake overshadows anything I have suffered completely. If he had lived six months more, I should have known him for what he was born to be. It was in the blood of him. His father and grandfather before him were fiddling, dancing people. But I was certain of him. I thought we could leave Ohio and come out here alone, and I could so love him and interest him in his work that he would be a man. Of all the fool, fruitless jobs making anything of a creature that begins by deceiving her is the foolest the same woman ever undertook. I am more than sorry you and Margaret didn't see your way clear to tell me long ago. I'd have found it out in a few more months if he had lived, and I wouldn't have borne it a day. The man who breaks his vows to me once don't get the second chance. I give truth and honor. I have a right to ask it in return. I'm glad I understand at last. Now, if Elnora will forgive me, we will take a new start and see what we can make out of what is left of life. If she won't, then it will be my turn to learn what suffering really means. But she will, said Sinton. She must. She can't help it when things are explained. Don't you worry over her. 
I notice she isn't hurrying about coming home. Do you know where she is or what she is doing? I do not, but likely she will be along soon. I must go help Billy with the night work. Goodbye, Catherine. Thank the Lord you have come to yourself at last. They shook hands and sent him went down the road while Mrs. Comstock entered the cabin. She went to the supper table, but she could not swallow food. She stood in the back door watching the sky for moths, but they did not seem to be very numerous. Her spirits sank and she breathed unevenly. Then she heard the front screen. She reached the middle door as Elnora touched the foot of the stairs. Hurry and get ready, Elnora, she said. Your supper is almost spoiled now. Elnora closed the stair door behind her and for the first time in her life threw the heavy lever which barred out any one from downstairs. Mrs. Comstock heard the thud and knew what it meant. She reeled slightly and caught the doorpost for support. For a few minutes she clung there, then sank to the nearest chair. After a long time she arose and, stumbling half-blindly, she put the food in the cupboard and covered the table. She took the lamp in one hand, the butter in the other, and started for the spring-house. Something brushed close by her face, and she looked just in time to see a winged creature rise above the cabin and sail away. That was a night-bird, she muttered. As she stooped to set the butter in the water, came another thought. Perhaps it was a moth. Mrs. Comstock dropped the butter and hurried out with the lamp. She held it high above her head and waited until her arms ached. Small insects of night gathered, and at last the little dusty miller, but nothing came of any size. "'I got to go where they are if I get them,' muttered Mrs. Comstock. She hurried into the cabin, set the lamp on the table, and stood thinking deeply. She went to the barn for the pair of stout high boots she used in feeding stock in deep snow. Throwing the boots by the back door, she climbed to the loft over the spring house and hunted an old lard oil lantern and one of first manufacture for oil. Both these she cleaned and filled. She listened until everything upstairs had been still for over a half hour. By that time it was after eleven o'clock. Then she took the good lantern from the kitchen, the two old ones, a handful of matches, a ball of twine, and went from the cabin softly closing the door. Sitting on the back step, she put on the boots and then stood gazing into the sweet June night, first in the direction of the woods on her land, then toward the Limberlost. Its outline looked so dark and forbidding, she shuddered and went down the garden, taking the path toward the woods. But as she neared the pool, her knees wavered and her courage fled. The knowledge that in her soul she was now glad Robert Comstock was at the bottom of it made a coward of her, who fearlessly had mourned him there nights untold. She could not go on. She skirted the back of the garden, crossed the field, and came out on the road. Soon she reached the Limberlost. She hunted until she found the old trail, then followed it stumbling over logs and through clinging vines and grasses. The heavy boots clumped on her feet, overhanging branches whipped her face and pulled her hair. But her eyes were on the sky she went straining into the night, hoping to find signs of a living creature on wing. By and by she began to see the wavering flight of something she thought near the right size. She had no idea where she was, but she stopped, lighted a lantern, and hung it as high as she could reach. A little distance away she placed the second, and then the third. The objects came nearer, and sick with disappointment, she saw that they were bats. Crouching in the damp swamp grasses, without a thought of snakes or venomous insects, she waited, her eyes roving from lantern to lantern. Once, she thought a creature of high flight dropped near the lard oil light, so she arose breathlessly waiting, but either it passed or it was an illusion. She glanced at the old lantern, then at the new, and was on her feet in an instant creeping close. Something large as a small bird was fluttering around. Mrs. Comstock began to perspire, while her hand shook wildly. 
Closer she crept, and just as she reached for it, something similar swept by and both flew away together. Mrs. Comstock set her teeth and stood shivering. For a long time the locusts rasped, the whippoorwills cried, and the steady hum of nightlife throbbed in her ears. Away in the sky she saw something coming what was no larger than a falling leaf, straight on toward the light it came. Without in the least realizing what she was doing, Mrs. Comstock began to pray aloud. This way, O oh Lord, make it come this way, please. You know how I need it. O oh Lord, send it lower. The moth hesitated at the first light, then slowly, easily, it came toward the second, as if following a path of air. It touched a leaf near the lantern and settled. As Mrs. Comstock reached for it, a thin yellow spray wet her hand in the surrounding leaves. When its wings raised above its back, her fingers came together. She held the moth to the light. It was nearer brown than yellow, and she remembered having seen some like it in the boxes that afternoon. It was not the one needed to complete the collection, but Elnora might want it, so Mrs. Comstock held on. Just there the Almighty was kind, or nature was sufficient, as you look at it, for following the law of its being when disturbed, the moth again threw the spray by which some suppose it attracts its kind, and liberally sprinkled Mrs. Comstock's dress front and arms. From that instant she became the best moth bait ever invented. Every polyphemus and range hastened to her, and other fluttering creatures of night followed. The influx came her way. She snatched wildly here and there until she had one in each hand and no place to put them. She could see more coming in her aching heart, swollen with the strain of long excitement, hurt pitifully. She prayed in broken exclamations that did not always sound reverent, but never was human soul in more deadly earnest. Moths were coming. She had one in each hand. They were not yellow, and she did not know what to do. She glanced around to try to discover some way to keep what she had, and her throbbing heart stopped and every muscle stiffened. There was the dim outline of a crouching figure not two yards away, and a pair of eyes their owner thought hidden, caught the light in a cold stream. Her first impulse was to scream and fly for life. Before her lips could open, a big moth alighted on her breast while she felt another walking over her hair. All sense of caution deserted her. She did not care to live if she could not replace the yellow moth she had killed. She set her eyes on those among the leaves. "'Here you!' she cried hoarsely. "'I need you. Get yourself out here and help me. These critters are going to get away from me, and I've got to have them. Hustle!' Pete Corson parted the bushes and stepped into the light. "'Oh, it's you,' said Mrs. Comstock. "'I might have known, but you gave me a start. Here, hold these until I make some sort of bag for them.' Go easy. If you break them, I don't guarantee what will happen to you. Pretty fierce, ain't you? laughed Pete, but he advanced and held out his hands. For Eldora, I suppose. Yes, said Mrs. Comstock. In a mad fit, I trampled one this morning, and by the luck of the old boy himself, it was the last moss she needed to complete a collection. I got to get another one or die. Then I guess it's your funeral, said Pete. There ain't a chance in a dozen the right one will come. What color was it? Yellow and big as a bird. The emperor, likely, said Pete. You dig for that kind, and they are not numerous, so as that you can smash them for fun. Well, I can try to get one anyway, said Mrs. Comstock. I forgot all about bringing anything to put them in. You take a pinch on their wings until I make a poke. Mrs. Comstock removed her apron, tearing off the strings. She unfastened and stepped from the skirt for calico dress. With one apron string, she tied shut the band and placket. She pulled a wire pin from her hair, stuck it through the other string, and using it as a bodkin, ran it around the hem of her skirt. Her fingers flew, and shortly she had a large bag. She put several branches inside to which the moths could cling, closed the mouth partially, and held it toward Pete. 
Put your hand well down and let the things go, she ordered. But be careful, man. Don't run into the twigs. Easy. That's one. Now the other. Is the one on my head gone? There was one on my dress, but I guess it flew. Here comes a kind of a gray-looking one. Pete slipped several more moths into the bag. Now that's five, Mrs. Comstock, he said. I'm sorry, but you'll have to make that do. You must get out of here lively. Your lights will be taken for hurry calls, and inside the next hour a couple of men will ride here like fury. They won't be nice Sunday school men, and they won't hold bags and catch moths for you. You must go, quick. Mrs. Comstock laid down the bag and pulled one of the lanterns lower. I won't budge a step, she said. This land don't belong to you. You have no right to order me off it. Here I stay until I get a yellow emperor, and no little petering thieves of this neighborhood can scare me away. You don't understand, said Pete. I'm willing to help Eleanor, and I'd take care of you if I could. But there will be too many for me, and they will be mad at being called out for nothing. Well, who's calling them out? demanded Mrs. Comstock. I'm catching moths. If a lot of good-for-nothings get fooled into losing some sleep, why let them? They can't hurt me or stop my work. They can, and they'll do both. Well, I'll see them do it, said Mrs. Comstock. I've got Robert's revolver in my dress, and I can shoot as straight as any man if I'm mad enough. Anyone that interferes with me tonight will find me mad aplenty. There goes another. She stepped into the light and waited until a big brown moss settled on her and was easily taken. Then, in light, airy flight, came a delicate pale green thing, and Mrs. Comstock started in pursuit. But the scent was not right. The moth fluttered high, then dropped lower, still lower, and sailed away. With outstretched hands, Mrs. Comstock pursued it. She hurried one way, then another, then ran over an object which tripped her and she fell. She regained her feet in an instant, but she had lost sight of the moth. With livid face, she turned on the crouching man. "'You nasty, sneaking son of Satan!' she cried. "'Why are you hiding there? You made me lose the one I wanted most of any I've had a chance as yet. Get out of here! Go this minute, or I'll fill your worthless carcass so full of holes you'll do to sift cornmeal.' Go, I say. I'm using the Limberlost tonight, and I won't be stopped by the devil himself. Cut like fury, and tell the rest of them they can just go home. Pete is going to help me, and he is all you I need. Now go. The man turned and went. Pete leaned against a tree, held his mouth shut, and shook inwardly. Mrs. Comstock came back, panting. The old scoundrel made me lose that, she said. If anyone else comes snooping around here, I'll just blow them up to start with. I haven't time to talk. Suppose that had been yellow. I'd have killed that man, sure. The Limberlost isn't safe tonight, and the sooner those whelps find it out, the better it will be for them. Pete stopped laughing to look at her. He saw that she was speaking the truth. She was quite past reason, sense, or fear. The soft night air stirred the wet hair around her temples. The flickering lanterns made her face a ghastly green. She would stop at nothing, that was evident. Pete suddenly began catching moths with exemplary industry and putting one into the bag, another escaped. "'We must not try that again,' said Mrs. Comstock. "'Now what will we do?' "'We are close to the old case,' said Pete. "'I think I can get into it. Maybe we could slip the rest in there.' "'That's a fine idea,' said Mrs. Comstock. "'They'll have so much room there, they won't be likely to hurt themselves, and the books say they don't fly in daytime unless they are disturbed. So they will settle when it's light, and I can come with Elnora to get them.' They captured two more, and then Pete carried them to the case." "'Here comes a big one,' he cried as he returned. Mrs. Comstock looked up and stepped out with a prayer on her lips. She could not tell the color at that distance, but the moth appeared different from the others. On it came, dropping lower and darting from light to light. As it swept near her, "'Oh, heavenly father!' exulted Mrs. Comstock. "'It's yellow!' 
Careful, Pete, your hat, maybe. Pete made a long sweep. The moth wavered above the hat and sailed away. Mrs. Comstock leaned against a tree and covered her face with her shaking hands. That is my punishment, she cried. Oh, Lord, if you will give a moth like that into my possession, I'll always be a better woman. The emperor again came in sight. Pete stood tense and ready. Mrs. Comstock stepped into the light and watched the moth's course. Then a second appeared in pursuit of the first. The larger one wavered into the radius of light once more. The perspiration rolled down the man's tense face. He half lifted the hat. Pray, woman, pray now, he panted. I guess I best get over by that lard oil light and go to work, breathed Mrs. Comstock. Lord knows this is all in prayer, but it's no time for words just now. Ready, Pete? You're going to get a chance first. Pete made another long, steady sweep, but the moth darted beneath the hat. In its flight it came straight toward Mrs. Comstock. She snatched off the remnant of apron she had tucked into her petticoat band and held the calico before her. The moth struck full against it and clung to the goods. Pete crept up stealthily. The second moth followed the first, and the spray showered the apron. Wait, gasped Mrs. Comstock. I think they have settled. The books say they won't leave now. The big, pale, yellow creature clung firmly, lowering and raising its wings. The other came nearer. Mrs. Comstock held the cloth with rigid hands while Pete could hear her breathing in short gusts. Shall I try now? he implored. Wait, whispered the woman. Something seems to say wait. The night breeze stiffened and gently waved the apron. Locusts rasped, mosquitoes hummed, and frogs sang uninterruptedly. A musky odor slowly filled the air. Now shall I? questioned Pete. No, leave them alone. They are safe now. They are mine. They are my salvation. God and the Limpolos gave them to me. They won't move for hours. The books all say so. Oh, Heavenly Father, I am thankful to you, and you too, Pete Corson. You are a good man to help me. Now I can go home and face my girl. Instead, Mrs. Comstock dropped suddenly. She spread the apron across her knees. The moths were undisturbed. Then her tired white head dropped. The tears she had thought forever dried shed forth, and she sobbed for pure joy. Oh, I won't do that now, you know, comforted Pete. Think of getting two. That's more than you ever could have expected. A body would think you would cry if you hadn't got any. Come on now, it's almost morning. Let me help you home. Pete took the bag and the two old lanterns. Mrs. Comstock carried her moths in the best lantern and went ahead to light the way. Elnora had sat by her window far into the night. At last she undressed and went to bed, but sleep would not come. She had gone to the city to talk with members of the school board about a room in the grades. There was a possibility that she might secure the moth and so be able to start to college that fall, but if she did not, then she wanted the school. She had been given some encouragement, but she was so unhappy that nothing mattered. She could not see the way open to anything in life while she remained with her mother, save a long series of disappointments. Yet Margaret Senton had advised her to go home and try once more. Margaret had seemed so sure there would be a change for the better that Elnora had consented, although she had no hope herself. So strong is the bond of blood, she could not make up her mind to seek a home elsewhere, even after the day which had passed. Unable to sleep, she arose at last, and the room being warm, she sat on the floor by the window. The lights in the swamp caught her eye. She was very uneasy, for quite a hundred of her best moths were in the case. However, there was no money, and no one ever had touched a book or anything of her apparatus. Watching the lights set her thinking, and before she realized it, she was in a panic of fear. 
She hurried down the stairway, softly calling her mother. There was no answer. She lightly stepped across the sitting room and looked in at the open door. There was no one, and the bed had not been used. Her first thought was that her mother had gone to the pool, and the Limberlost was alive with signals. Pity and fear mingled in the heart of the girl. She opened the kitchen door, crossed the garden, and ran back to the swamp. As she neared it, she listened, but she could hear only the usual voices of night. "'Mother!' she called softly, then louder. "'Mother!' There was not a sound. Chilled with fright, she hurried back to the cabin. She did not know what to do. She understood what the lights in the Limberlost meant. Where was her mother? She was afraid to enter while she was growing very cold and still more fearful about remaining outside. At last she went to her mother's room, picked up the gun, carried it into the kitchen, and crowding in the little corner behind the stove, she waited in trembling anxiety. The time's dreadfully long before she heard her mother's voice. Then she decided that someone had been ill and sent for her, so she took courage, and stepping swiftly across the kitchen, she unbarred the door and drew back out of sight by the table. Mrs. Comstock entered, dragging her heavy feet. Her dress skirt was gone, her petticoat wet and drabbled, and the waist of her dress was almost torn from her body. Her hair hung in damp strings, her eyes were red with crying. In one hand she held the lantern, and in the other, stiffly extended before her, on a wad of calico reposed a magnificent pair of yellow emperors. Elnor stared, her lips parted. "'Shall I put these others in the kitchen?' inquired a man's voice. The girl shrank back to the shadows. "'Yes, anywhere inside the door,' replied Mrs. Comstock as she moved a few steps to make way for him. Pete's head appeared. He set down the moths and was gone. "'Thank you, Pete. More than ever woman thanked you before,' said Mrs. Comstock. She placed the lantern on the table and barred the door. As she turned, Elnora came into view. Mrs. Comstock leaned toward her and held out the moths. In a voice vibrant with tones never before heard, she said, Elnora, my girl, mother's found you another moth. End of chapter 12